Hello and welcome to Tales from the Campanile, production of the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. In our inaugural season from the outside in, Women in Politics, we explore the long and embattled history of women who left their mark on the nation's political arena. Please join our host, Emmy Award-winning journalist, Belva Davis, for episode three, From the Ground Up. By the end of World War II, women had made significant advancements within America's political system. They ran for office, held seats in Congress, and with their vote began to exercise a stronger voice. For women of color, that advancement was slower and much more arduous. And for African-American women, many of whom were unable to vote because of racist practices at the polls, the prospect of holding elected office was nearly unthinkable. However, politics isn't just about elections and holding office. It's about building civic engagement. Many African-American women used this opportunity to advance political reform from the ground up. Across the nation, strong and selfless women stood at the heart of their communities. In Berkeley, California, that civic heartbeat was Frances Mary Albrier. Born in 1898, Albrier grew up in Tuskegee, Alabama, a world apart from the California city she would later call home. Orphaned at age three, Albrier was raised by her grandmother, who became the strongest influence in her life. Her grandmother was a former slave, friends with Sojourner Truth and Booker T. Washington, and one of the founding citizens of the famed Tuskegee Institute. Above all, she instilled in her granddaughter the importance of civic service, of community, and of combating prejudice with love, lessons she took with her when she left Alabama. After attending Fisk and Howard universities, Albrier moved to Berkeley in 1920 and was greeted by a much different place. I wasn't aware when I first came out because there were not many Negro people out here. And you only saw them if you went to church. Uh, I could walk all over Berkeley all day and see just about two Negro people. And I was quite lonesome and it kind of set me back. Uh, I was just quite lonesome from coming out of school where there were all Negro people and the South where there was hundreds of Negro people and come out here was just a few families. She also encountered the familiar veil of discrimination. In the public, you weren't discriminated. wasn't discriminated in the theaters. You wasn't discriminated in the church or opera or any of those places that you might go. It was mostly in an employment. There began to be discrimination in housing if you were black. And the youth, the children, felt discrimination in some of the schools with the teachers. There was discrimination in some of the restaurants, and a great many of the restaurants, and there was discrimination in the hotels. Uh, if they caught you by yourself, they just politely told you they didn't serve black people. Like she was taught during her youth, Albrier met this discrimination with an unwavering resolve for change. 
a change she knew would only come through community engagement in the political arena. For Albrier, political involvement meant uniting Berkeley's African-American residents together into a politically active group. Ironically, it was the economic downturn of the 1930s that proved helpful in this effort. I think that the Depression was one of the best years that I've known. That sounds funny. But the Depression brought people together. If I wanted to have a community meeting, all I would do is send out a call. We're going to have a community meeting, and we are going to talk about opening up certain projects for the black people. And I'd get all of the community would come, and we would meet each other, converse with each other, and talk to each other. And the same thing sometimes to get them together, we'd have a party, and everybody would bring something to the party and would have a nice exchange of ideas and meeting people. And we met neighbors we had never met before. And the Depression brought people together better than anything else that I know of. When the Depression was ending and the war came and people got employment, they were separated. You never saw them much after that. And it was very hard to get them into meetings. In organizing Berkeley's growing African-American community, Albrier also formed a women's group to challenge discrimination in the city. We were where we didn't have any representation. We needed an organization to express ourselves and our grievances in the community. And through my education in the Labor's Nonpartisan League and in politics, I formed the East Bay Women's Welfare Club of Mothers. To gain further exposure in support of the issues the club sought to address, Albrier took a rare step for a woman of color at that time. She put her name on the local ballot. I filed and ran for city council, which was very unusual for a woman to do. And as women hadn't become very active in politics, but I knew that I didn't file a run to be elected. I didn't think I would be elected because I didn't think that people were broad-minded enough to elect a black woman. But I was in for a surprise. I received a great many votes by being elected. But my idea of running was to meet the people. I knew that if I ran for city council, I would be invited to the clubs and organizations to give my views on the city government. And I wanted to tell them that we had 5,000 taxpayers without any representation in the city government or the schools of Berkeley. And that was the message I wanted to get over to them because later we had planned to make an issue. She may not have won at the ballot box that November, but her brave campaign laid important groundwork for addressing discrimination in Berkeley. Without missing a step, All Briar and the East Bay Women's Club immediately turned their attention to the city's schools. After the election, the East Bay Women's Welfare Club, we met and we decided what should be our next project on our teachers in the schools. And when we decided to meet with the Board of Education and to tell them that we were decided, they were very well aware of it because we had made that a subject. So they decided to meet with the Board of Education and until we got the meeting out into the public. 
Equal opportunity at the workplace was one of the building blocks of the burgeoning civil rights movement in America. The struggle began close to home. The majority of businesses that served the city's African-American community did not employ workers of color. Albrier fought to change that. I was in the Pullman service at that time, and I wanted to go to Woolworths to get some manicuring things. And as I went into Woolworths, I met this picket, and he had this sign, don't buy where you can't work. So I questioned him, and he said that they would not hire any black clerks, and we are picketing this, this store in the south side, and we're picketing the main store downtown, and all black people is to stay out. So I said, fine, I'll go. But that made quite an impression on me. Here, we organized this club to get people to trade with people who were employing Negroes. Mm -hmm. And we found out all the little stores in black neighborhoods mm -hmm. that, that were surviving off of black patronage. Mm -hmm. And Mr. King had came into the neighborhood and he had a little small place, a little meat shop. He butted out from that little small shop into a larger shop and then into a large market. Oh. Off of the patronage of the black people, he first hired two black girls and then the labor unions got in behind him and he got angry with the labor unions and he put the store on a cooperative basis that is kind of a family basis ownership. He let out all of the employees that wasn't in the family. He told us he did that in order to get by the, the, the union, but we didn't agree with him because his patronage came from the black people in the community. So we asked him to put those two girls back, and he wouldn't. And so we decided to picket him. It was a great many of the men wanted to take the picket. I took the picket the first morning of the picket mm -hmm. of King's store, and it was don't buy where you can't work. And the black community all understood. As the U.S. entered World War II, equality in the workplace took on a new dimension. When women across the country took factory jobs, it was an opportunity to challenge the racial barriers of America's war efforts. In stride, Albrier bravely railed against racial discrimination starting with the Red Cross. The Red Cross at that time did not take in any black women into their motor corps. I decided then to break down that discrimination because we were going into war and so many of our young black people, men, were going into war and we were fighting for social equality and all of that. At the beginning of the war, there were some people who went to the Red Cross, black people, and wanted to give their blood, and they said that they didn't take black people's blood. I made up my mind that I was gonna break through this Red Cross issue because I knew they would need women drivers. So I took this course, that was one of the requirements, because the men would be in other fields and you should know something about a car when it broke down. The little things about the car, whether it was the battery or the cable 
uh, any of those things or to change your tire, you must know how to do that. I decided to take that course. I applied to go into the Red Cross Motor Corps, which I was accepted, oh, they but they never called. Undeterred, Albrier next set her sights on integrating the Kaiser shipyards in Richmond. After being certified as a welder, she refused to be sent to the Oakland shipyard, the only place that would hire African-American women. Her initial rejection from the Kaiser shipyard sparked a standoff that Albrier was determined to win. Taking the fight straight to the shipyard chairman and threatening to sue for discrimination, Albrier did not rest until she became the first African-American female welder at the Kaiser shipyards. When I walked in the shipyard with the welding leather, all the leather, you had to wear leather coat, leather pants, and the shipyard's hat, and this welder, the shipwrights, the black shipwrights stopped and said, how did you get in here? How did you make it in here? Because they are not hiring any black welders out here. I said, well, I just happened to fuss my way out here. And they said, more power to you, glad to see you. It was victory for black women in the democratic procedure. In the decades that followed World War II, Albrier continued her involvement in community politics. She was the first woman elected to the Alameda County Democratic Central Committee, a position she held for so long that even years after she stepped down, Residents continued to search for her name on the ballot. Albrier's decade of service sought to better her community and forged a path for the women of color who followed it. I've seen 40 years of change. I've seen changes that I never thought that I would see. I knew a long time ago, and people like Mary McLeod Bethune, who I knew very well, and those type of women, and with the teachers and those in Tuskegee and Howard, they instilled in we older ones that we would not get what we thought we would get. We would not get any positions that we were entitled, but we must struggle and work to place the other younger ones behind in those positions. And it would take time, so we'd have to have the patience. And I have lived to see the things that I work for come to pass today, because I never thought I'd see so many young black women in positions that I see them in today. Women such as Zalbrier were nothing short of pioneers. Working from the ground up, they united their communities, broke down racial barriers, and opened doors for the next generation. As we'll see next time, these efforts allowed women of color to take their rightful seat in America's political system. This has been a production of the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Narrated by Belva Davis. Researched and written by Todd Holmes. Produced and edited by Shanna Farrell and Christina Kim. Production assistance was provided by Julie Allen, Paul Burnett, David Dunham, Martin Meeker, and Linda Norton. And a special thank you to project advisor David Boyer. All interview clips were drawn from the Oral History Center collections. I'm Martin Meeker, director of the Oral History Center. Thank you for listening.